0: Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark McSally. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, there's some cause for celebration among those who had been watching the steady decline of funding for biomedical research in this country. The House of Representatives, in a rare show of bipartisanship, recently passed the 21st Century Cures Bill, which increases funding for research. It also facilitates ways to expedite the research process.
1: Well, while the U.S. has led the world in support for biomedical research, funding has been hampered for more than a decade, Mark, and that $30 billion budget for the National Institute of Health has really stayed flat during that time, which means its buying power has actually dropped, dropped by 22% over a decade, and as we've heard from a number of guests on our show, that's jeopardized research and also the careers of talented young scientists, so this is very
0: welcome news. It really is. The 21st Century Cures bill sets aside $1.75 billion per year for research over the next five years and would also tweak the government's drug approval process. That particular provision has some observers worried, however. Some are concerned that it would bypass long-held safeguards aimed at keeping dangerous drugs off the market. The House bill isn't the last word, though. The Senate is crafting its own version But however the final agreement looks, biomedical and drug research in the United States is likely to get a long overdue shot in the arm.
1: And that is something that our guest today knows quite intimately, Mark. Dr. Margaret Hamburg has recently stepped down as the director of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and she has a unique insight into the complex role of keeping the nation's food and drug streams safe. consumption for all Americans. And that is really quite a Herculean task. It
0: really is. And it's been called the most challenging job in government, Margaret. And there have been many challenges and changes under her watch. So really looking forward to that conversation.
1: And Lori Robertson will stop by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public
0: domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
1: And if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Margaret Hamburg in just a moment. But first,
0: here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. The Senate has voted to defund Planned Parenthood as part of a long-standing GOP effort to remove federal funding from the organization. It comes on the heels of the recent release of a series of doctored videos edited to look as though Planned Parenthood officials were peddling fetal body parts for money. Only 3% of Planned Parenthood's expenditures go towards abortion services. The rest go for routine exams and preventive screenings for the nation's largely poor or uninsured population, offering basic health services to 2.7 million American women and men as well. The Department of Defense has decided on a contract for upgrading electronic health records for the Veterans Administration with a consortium led by Cerner, a $4 billion-plus contract aimed at improving interoperability between systems that care for the nation's roughly 10 million veterans. The military's goal is to use its new system to achieve health IT interoperability with thousands of civilian health care partners. That's because 60 to 70 percent of the care provided to the 9.6 million military health system beneficiaries, that's active duty military personnel, retirees and their families, is delivered by providers in the private sector. Another goal will be to enhance the military health system's interoperability with the Veterans Health Administration's VISTA EHR. Decades-long inability of the two systems to communicate has been the focus of multiple Government Accountability Office reports and congressional hearings. Other analysts are looking towards this new experiment to see if it will break through the interoperability barrier plaguing the current configuration of EHR vendors across the country. Another large poultry manufacturing company is jumping in the no-antibiotics wagon, Purdue announced it was phasing out antibiotics use in their poultry population, stating it's the first time one of the large producers is able to post no antibiotics ever on at least some of its labels. Tyson announced a program that would phase out their use within three years. High use of antibiotics in meat production has led to an increase in antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And smokeless tobacco, a 100-year mainstay on ball fields across America is coming up against a formidable foe. San Francisco is banning the use and sale of dip, favoured by ball players across the nation, issuing a ban that will go into effect next year. The campaign for tobacco-free kids is behind the move, seeking to have dip snuffed out at parks across the country where many children come to watch the games. Six other cities are lining up behind the measure as well. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're
0: speaking today with Dr. Margaret Hamburg, Foreign Secretary at the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine. She recently stepped down as the Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, where she served since 2009. Dr. Hamburg also served as Commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. She has been Vice President for Biological Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Dr. Hamburg was elected to the Board of the Institute of Medicine in 1994 and has received numerous awards, among them the National Consumer League's Trumpeter Award in 2011. She was listed as the 54th. First, most powerful women in the world by Forbes. She earned her undergraduate degree from Radcliffe and her medical degree from Harvard. Dr. Hamburg, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Well, thank you very
0: much. You were appointed by President Obama in 2009, and uh, like any new commissioner, you probably ran into problems that uh, <laughs> you didn't didn't expect. And so, talk about the climate when you arrived, and uh, how did you write the ship?
3: First, let me say what a privilege it was mm-hmm. to be the FDA commissioner. It was a surprise to me, to be honest, when I got to the FDA to realize how broad and diverse the responsibilities of the FDA are, you know, from being responsible for overseeing the safety, effectiveness, and quality of medical products, drugs, devices, vaccines, biologics, to ensuring the safety of the nation's blood supply, um, the safety and security of the majority of the nation's food supply responsibility for oversight that includes dietary supplements and cosmetics, the regulation and oversight of tobacco products, Um, it's estimated that about 20 cents, maybe more of every dollar that consumers spend on products or on products that in fact are regulated by the FDA, and products that people care about, you know, whether it's the medicine that they take, the food they put on their table. So we're an agency that makes a difference in the lives of people and in our economy in terms of the industries that we regulate, but an industry that people like to blame, sadly, for a (laughs) lot of things. You know, we used to joke at the FDA that there are two speeds of approval, too fast and too slow. (laughs) But at the end of the day, you know, I have to say that, you know, FDA really does an extraordinary job trying to weigh risks and benefits, responding quickly when problems do happen, and you know, really trying to engage in a positive, constructive way with all of our partners.
1: Well, Dr. Hamburg, I think uh, you have just given me a really good understanding of why the job of heading the FDA has been described by Time Magazine as one of the toughest jobs in government. And there must be quite a uh, sort of seen and unseen matrix of partnership that the FDA works with to keep America's food and drugs safe. What is the relationship between the FDA and other uh, health and safety organizations
3: there isn't anybody else that's going to backstop behind the FDA to do the job. So budget really does matter. For far too long, the FDA has not gotten the resources it needs to do its critical job. And in that context, it's important to recognize that the world is getting more and more complex Mm -hmm. and the FDA role more challenging and, frankly, more resource-intensive. And globalization has really Change the contours of FDA work and responsibility. The products that FDA regulates are increasingly coming in whole or in part from other countries and other parts Mm -hmm. of the world. And for FDA to fulfill its mission, which is to promote and protect the health of the American public, it actually has to engage in new and important ways with partners around the world. It is extraordinary to look at the numbers. About 40% of the finished drugs that are taken in the United States are actually made somewhere else. And about 80% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients in drugs are being manufactured in other countries. Hmm. But the food side is actually equally startling. About 50% of the fruits and nuts eaten in this country are coming from other countries Over 85% of the seafood coming from other countries. And importantly also, these products are often coming in whole or in part from countries with much less sophisticated Mm -hmm. systems for safety and Mm -hmm. regulatory oversight. And so that increases the risk and vulnerability for Americans Mm -hmm. as well. So the notion that the old model for the FDA of just inspecting things As they came over the border could no longer apply. We were seeing, you know, tens of millions of import lines coming in dramatically and not just coming in through one or two ports or um, border crossings, but, you know, more than 300 different crossings around the country. So we really felt we needed both to push our presence out closer to where the products were coming from and establish offices. In countries around the world that could be hubs for activity but also engage in new ways with our counterparts and with industry to really try to raise quality and standards and oversight throughout the whole supply chain for these products so we've made enormous strides we've actually helped to create whole new governance mechanisms that cut across national and regional boundaries Uh, we've tried to really implement New authorities that Congress has given us in recent years that enable us to work in a more collaborative way with our counterparts and also to take more decisive action when needed, when problems occur.
0: You know, I wanted to pull the thread on uh, the statement you made about the work being complicated and certainly the Plan B uh, birth control, making it available to teens and adults over counter, and then also the serious problems with compounding pharmacies. And I'm wondering, uh, could you describe uh, your uh, administration's response to those issues and what did you learn from those and other challenges you encountered?
3: Well, I think science always has to be the compass that guides the work to help enhance your decision-making ability. But at the end of the day, you really have to have science as your guide. And that was certainly what happened with the Plan B case that you raised. FDA scientists and companies had been really looking at both the science and the best practice and use. And a decision was made about indications for use and approval of a Plan B product for over-the-counter use. The studies had been done and the data demonstrated that even at the younger ages, safety risks were extremely minimal. The health benefits were measurable, and it met the criteria for FDA approval. Um, A decision was made to override um, the decision of the Mm -hmm. FDA, and my recommendation I was disappointed by the decision to override the recommendation of the FDA, which had been arrived at over a period of many years looking at data but coming to the conclusion about safe and appropriate use. And, in fact, the case ended up going to the courts, and um, the decision of the FDA was uh, supported. But that was very difficult. I felt that clearly my role was to take a clear-eyed look Mm -hmm. at the data, and to make the best recommendation uh, based on that and you know it is just one of many issues where you have to navigate across waters that are often rather choppy with very different political and social perspectives complicating the pathway Mm -hmm. that needs to be followed in terms of what is the science and sometimes that means after an approval has Mm -hmm. occurred As new data emerges, Mm -hmm. sometimes having to make decisions to pull a drug back. The FDA's responsibility is really a lifespan approach, and it would be very unrealistic to think that you can know everything about a product at the time of approval. Mm -hmm. People are complicated. They have multiple disease conditions at once. So really FDA takes a lifespan approach and always doing course adjustments Mm -hmm. when appropriate.
1: Well, I I think if you put out the question to the society at large... You'd also probably hear some theme about, oh, it takes too long and, and an impatience to get drugs to market. You were credited, I think, with significantly increasing the number of drugs that were approved for use in the marketplace. And I, I can't help but think, as we often say in our work, that technology is our friend. Maybe you could talk about uh, some of the, the challenges and, and, and your solutions around approving things in a shorter time frame or getting drugs that offer real promise out there in the marketplace sooner.
3: You know I mentioned earlier that FDA's mission is to promote and protect the health of the public, but there also is a real responsibility to ensure that FDA is facilitating the availability of safe and effective products as timely a way as possible as quickly through the system as possible, but adhering to a set of solid and frankly well proven standards for safety and efficacy as well. We took a very, very serious look at our business processes, and our systems to make them as streamlined and modern as possible. But we also recognize that a lot of the ability to streamline the regulatory review process depended on trying to accelerate the research and development process, the critical issue is not how long does it take for the FDA to review a drug. It's actually a very short time frame and people are astounded by how quickly some of the review times in fact are. But the critical thing is how long does it take to go from that important discovery that shines a light on a new opportunity Mm -hmm. to getting that product into the clinic or into your medicine cabinet. And that's where I think we did some of our most dramatic work in changing the thinking, because one of the things that's so important about the FDA is that we really understand, the FDA really understands about what it takes to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of a product, to ask and answer a set of critical questions about what are the risks and what are the benefits and for whom. Also questions about safety quality uh, manufacturing and how do you scale up from something that you might be able to make for a limited number of people that can actually be manufactured in a way that's reliable and creates um, a stable uh, product so all of those things are part of the you know day in day out experience and expertise of the FDA but for too long I think, that knowledge base was kind of insulated from a lot of what was going on in the research community and so we tried to create new partnerships with academia and with industry scientists to try to really um, create an approach that reflected uh, a much more modern streamlined r d process as well what we've learned in recent years, is that the more FDA engages, provides feedback about what kinds of studies need to be done, how best to frame the research to get the kind of answers that will be meaningful and make a difference as something moves along the product development pipeline, that you can actually decrease the R&D time and costs which at the end of the day matters enormously for patients and matters in terms of more efficient use of research dollars and certainly um, makes for a more robust industry as well. So it's a win-win-win, I think, and it's, it's it's a somewhat different way of doing business. And, of course, FDA has a unique and special role as the regulator that always has to be, accounted for and addressed in terms of the partnerships that we engage in but but this notion that FDA should sort of sit um, in a isolated place waiting for the application to to cross our threshold and then engaging I think has has slowed uh, the process and that it is it is you know, really a much more dynamic research environment now, and we're seeing a lot of exciting work that is affecting whole classes of products as we think about how do you use genomic information, how do you use biomarkers, how do you design and implement much more innovative clinical trial designs, how do you use big data and drill down more deeply, especially in the era of personalized medicine, into you know who responds to certain products who is more likely to develop significant adverse events etc so there's an enormous opportunity to really integrate the knowledge and experience of FDA in with the ongoing research community to have a much more effective R&D approach to really deliver its
0: promise. We're speaking today with Dr. Margaret Hamburg. She recently stepped down as Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, where she served since 2009. Dr. Hamburg also served as Commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Dr. Hamburg, uh, there have been some important and dramatic rulings at the FDA in the recent months, and I'm sure many of those started under your tenure. The recent FDA ruling to eliminate trans- from the food stream within three years, and also a call for the meat and poultry industries to scale back their rampant use of antibiotics in food production. Could you tell our listeners about some of these recent developments and the research that led to it
3: well you you note a couple of different important areas of activity, um, the safety of the food supply in terms of contamination, which is and foodborne outbreaks, which is much more understood to the safety of food additives, the nutritional information that's available in the Nutrition Facts Panel, the labeling of menus with calories. The removal of trans fat in the American diet, I think, is going to be one of the things that's recognized over time as making the most difference in terms of preventing disease and truly saving lives. It was a number of years ago back in the mid-2000s when FDA first started requiring companies note the presence of trans fat, which, you know, began to shine a spotlight on trans fats in the diet and companies started to reduce the levels of trans fats in processed foods. FDA fairly recently took the step to actually move towards elimination of artificially added trans fats i think it reflects what consumers actually want we do learn more about risks and benefits of products than it does need to be reflected in information for healthcare providers and for consumers and in some instances it does lead to more aggressive action including mm-hmm. Sometimes recalls of products, but that's part of you know what is I think the the normal cycle of understanding and the need to keep deepening knowledge about mm-hmm. products and their use.
1: Well, Dr. Hamburg, I uh, suspect that your very broad and very global perspective is going to be of immense value for you in this new chapter as the foreign secretary at the Institute of Medicine. And you know we. We follow the work of the IOM. Uh, we had the former Institute Director, Harvey Feinberg, on the show talking about the broad scope of the IOM's work. What does it mean to be the IOM Foreign Secretary, and what will you be doing in this capacity on the global front?
3: As of July 1, we officially are the National Academy of Medicine, part of uh, what is a great historic institution, the National Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. which has three branches. You know, I think my interest in serving as the Foreign Secretary is to be able to continue and extend my interests in global health, which began before I was at the FDA working on biological threats to health, um, infectious disease threats that are naturally occurring as well, sadly, as, as biological threats to including biological weapons and biological terrorism working on global health problems like TB, malaria, HIV, and then at FDA working on globalizations and global health issues from the perspective of consumer product safety, globalization of supply chains, and the growing issues of counterfeit and substandard medical products as well as food supply. And, you know, it's really more important than ever before for organizations that may be domestic in their organization, but really now operating in a world that is globalized. Mm -hmm. And certainly science, medicine, and public health are global enterprises. The problems are shared across borders and regions, and the solutions have to be shared. And so I think it's, it's an exciting way to interact with other academies of medicine to work on the important core mission of the academies, which is to use science to inform policy to make the world a better, safer place. And I think that, that this role of foreign secretary will allow me to work in important and powerful ways.
0: We've been speaking today with Dr. Margaret Hamburg. Recently, the Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and now Foreign Secretary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the Academy, National Academy of Medicine. You can learn more about her work by going to IOMNationalAcademies.org. Dr. Hamburg, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations Today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
4: Former New York Governor George Pataki, who's running for president, said that the Affordable Care Act is preventing economic growth and forcing millions and millions of Americans to work only part time but economic evidence contradicts that. Pataki made the claim at a GOP candidate forum in New Hampshire. Let's start with the part-time claim, which many Republicans have made. The ACA defines a full-time worker as one working 30 hours a week, and there have been news reports of employers of low-wage workers saying they might cut hours to avoid a requirement to provide insurance to full-time employees. But data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show the trend is in the opposite direction. The number of those working part-time involuntarily for economic reasons has gone down. It was 6.5 million in June, 1 million lower than last year, and 2.7 million lower than it was in March 2010 when the ACA was enacted. As for the economy, it has been growing. Real gross domestic product grew at a yearly rate of 2.3 percent in the second quarter of this year, says the Commerce Department.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. As the saying goes, music soothes the savage beast. And according to a recent study conducted by Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland, there's some empirical data to back that up. In a first-of-a-kind longitudinal study, children suffering from a variety of behavioral and emotional conditions who were exposed to music therapy in addition to traditional therapies had far better outcomes than those children in a control group that offered traditional therapy without music therapy.
5: Basically, it's about treating children with emotional and behavioral problems with music therapy in addition to normal psychiatric care. It's not a matter of them being given music or choosing music. They actually make music along with the music therapist assisting them. So the idea is for them to express themselves through music.
1: Lead researcher Dr. Sam Porter said there's been anecdotal evidence that music improves mood in children and adolescents as well as adults, but his study revealed just how effective the music therapy was.
5: Our primary outcome was an improvement in communication. There, was, there were two very interesting secondary outcomes, levels of depression and levels of self-esteem. And in the secondary outcomes, we find a statistically significant difference between the control group and the intervention group.
1: Dr. Porter says in the group-given musical therapy, it showed over time more interaction with their surroundings and a better response to the traditional therapies as well. And, he says, the effects were sustained over time.
5: I mean, that's one of the marvellous things about Music therapy is the things that it's not. There are no side effects. It is not a dangerous therapy to get kids involved and it is a a productive way of, of getting kids to improve their health. So it is just such a good way and a harmless way of doing things. So it's really satisfying to know that it's also an effective way of doing it.
1: The study was conducted in conjunction with the Northern Ireland Music Therapy Trust, which sees the promising findings as an incentive to incorporate this relatively low-cost, non-invasive therapy into standard protocols as an additional tool to enhance outcomes for the youth population which often suffers negative side effects from powerful medications. A simple, targeted music therapy approach, age-appropriate and showing great efficacy in improving outcomes for young patients with minimal side effects and lasting benefits, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And I'm Mark Maselli.
1: Peace and health.